Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Hi, everybody. It's Liam Billingham, co-host of Uber Busters. George is on vacation. And what a perfect time to sit down with my friend, Annie Malamet. Hi, Annie. Hi, Liam. How are you? Good. What's going on? Not much. You know, it's really hot here in Brooklyn. <laughs> it's really hot here. Yeah. It is. It's awful. It's so bad. So bad. August heat. The doldrums. The dol- Ooh, the do- <laughs> everyone, today the word of the week is doldrums. Um, speaking of heat, we just watched, we're here to talk about Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, I feel like you and I had a conversation a while ago, like probably over a month ago now, about kind of, I don't know, his, his work or his work that would be where he played gay or queer characters. Yeah. And you sort of made me realize that he played a lot more queer characters than I had remembered. He played gay a lot. He played a lot of gay. Yeah. Um, I can think of four. I can think of, obviously, Capote. Mm-hmm. Um, Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. Flawless. Mm-hmm. And then... Kind of the movie The Master. Definitely the movie The Master. <laughs> Based on the clip <laughs> that we just watched. Um, and I want to hear, like, you know, I want to hear kind of your thoughts on it because one of the things we've talked about with the show a little bit is the idea of Phil Hoffman as an everyman. Like, as a straight white guy, as <laughs> a straight white guy yeah, having, who a has a podcast, I think I always sort of was like, oh, there's a guy who, um, to me, at least, read as, um, or uh, I kind of identified with him as an everyman, so to speak. And what that does a little bit is it makes you go, as an adult now living my life, I've kind of realized like, oh, that's not like a, that's a very like coded way to think about it. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, everyman, but he's like a big, he's a white guy. He's like a big white guy. But so I was thinking about that a little bit. And then I was, and then the conversations about him playing gay, like really interested me because now it probably wouldn't be as appropriate for him to play a lot of these parts, which is, I think is a, p- a positive thing ultimately. Um, yeah. I mean, it's complicated. I mean, he, I would, I guess I would push back on that a little bit and say that he is an everyman of a kind, right. even when he does play gay, he doesn't play, um, 
like a beefcake, right? right? He plays <laughs> yeah. more of like sort of yeah. the internal dialogue of a lot of gay men who suffer from like body dysmorphia mm-hmm. and insecurity in that community. And I do notice that with the queer characters that he plays, like it's right. it's never a super confident person and part of that also has to do with the homophobia of the writing of those parts okay um of you know him acting as sort of a like for example in boogie nights Mm -hmm. like that that whole character could easily be a gay joke but because right right but because philip seymour hoffman brings so much nuance to every character it ends up being something a lot deeper than that but with a lesser actor easily could have been a write-off gay joke moment do you feel like so to that point like that's we've talked about that scene a little bit especially in relationship to his like part in happiness which has this like i do this this ridiculous impression (laughs) kind of thing but it's like it kind of exists in that kind of like really, I guess in a way, I mean, in that film, in Big Nights, he's closeted in yes. kind of a way, but also just like really repressed. Super repressed, super cringy. Right. Um, I mean, in that film, I sort of think of him as like a kind of a gay archetype, like a very closeted guy who um, is obsessed with this unattainable straight man um played by mark Wahlberg, who's like by, so hetero like kind of so hetero yeah that, that it's like a joke right. but at the same time i mean you could nobody's gayer than straight men okay let's, <laughs> let's put that out there agreed yeah so you could you could dissect that a little write that down as the name for the episode <laughs> no one no one does homoeroticism better than straight men that yeah yeah so that uh, I mean, you know, we could dissect Mark Wahlberg's character, but we're in talking everything too. Mark yes. Wahlberg has a quality. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, you know that's kind of, and I'm obviously kind of going off on a tangent here, but it kind of goes back to that whole thing of like women's beauty and beauty standards are standards are dictated by men, and men try to counter that by saying like, oh, well, the beauty standards for us are also impossible, and I'm like, those were made by men, right? So well, this kind of comes back to something I. I was saying that I don't think I, I articulated super well is that like based on my own kind of like ish, body issues and those kinds of things I'd look like a guy of like Philip Seymour Hoffman be like I can relate to that guy whatever that might mean but the thing that's interesting about that at least the way that I think about it is like that it, it's an it's a kind of everyman thing but that's denying the way that a lot of the time the everyman is like the Mark Wahlberg or the beefcake or the like kind of like there was something about him that felt like more attainable as an artist and an actor to like Whatever regular people are. He's you know? a, a beta male icon. Beta, he's kind of a beta male icon. <laughs> yeah. That's such a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah, he has that quality of being like. Not to like use incel language, but yeah, I get I, it. you know what I'm saying. Well, I spent a, a. When I think about him now and the, you know, the fact that he passed away, but I, when I think about his. What would he be doing now? Like, I'd be really curious to see the kind of parts he'd be doing now because I feel like he'd be a great actor to approach some of these like really terrible human beings that are ruining everything (laughs) yeah i mean oh it's such a like a you know the would have the could have should have like who knows what kind of person he would be now i mean i feel like so many uh actors who are like really coming up when i was growing up like him 
you know, have sort of become horrible people also. So, like, yeah. who knows? I mean, we're living in this really weird moment where we're kind of, you know, just seeing a lot of people pivot yeah. or, or just kind of, like, lose their minds completely. I know. It's nice. And it's also with him. It's like, I mean, one of the things that I love, I feel a certain amount of like, no, Phil, Phil's a good, like, Phil be a good guy. Like, I have that sort of feeling Oh, yeah, I hope him. so. But yeah. I know it's, it's like, it's, and then also the fact that he is gone has kind of like cemented his status. Like, he was a legend of an actor, I think. Yeah, and will like, always be. And nothing can tarnish that. No. And he, I mean, he brought so much nuance to the queer characters that he played. Right. Like, Flawless, for example. I don't, I wouldn't call that character a gay man because that character is queer that character wants gender reassignment surgery right so i you know whether or not they wrote it responsibly whatever but i would just say that's a queer character he brings so much nuance to this to this character in this otherwise schlock fest of a movie it is <laughs> i mean i mean it really schlock fest raves Andy Malamut. <laughs> I mean, it's literally just Robert De Niro being an awful person and like uh, using a queer person to find out, like, hey, maybe this fag is okay. There is a straight guy uh, bloom blossoming because of a gay character yes. kind of quality. Even if yes. you watch, I watch, you know, clips um, of it, and it was interesting because it it immediately felt that way. That it was kind of like this white guy needs to fix his life. Let's like have the queer character save him. Yes. Oof. Can I read you a quote? Yes. So in Out Magazine in 2005, I did a little, re a very little bit of research and I thought this would be an interesting way to talk about Flawless, but also these four movies. So there was this, in October two 2005, right when Capote, Capote? Capote. Capote. <laughs> did you see Capote? <laughs> Capote was coming out. He did an, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman did an interview with Michael Mustow. And it's I couldn't find the whole thing, but I found some excerpts. And there was one quote that I thought was interesting, which Michael Musto said, Capote is certainly not your introduction to playing gay. Are you drawn to gay projects or do they find you? And Philip Seymour Hoffman's answer, which I'm really curious to get your take on, is as follows. Quote, when I play somebody gay, I never think of it as I'm playing a gay character. It's interesting to play all the different aspects of the character. There's something else about the character that's pulling me there that I identify with. With Flawless, it's not that he was gay. I found it more interesting that he thought he was a woman. With Capote, it's the story that he had as an artist. And in Boogie Nights, he was so completely stunted, I don't even think he knew his attractions were of a gay nature. Mm. Yeah, I mean, is some problematic language yeah. going on there, but ignoring that because I'm going to give straight people the benefit of the doubt that they just don't know what yeah. to say, <laughs> uh, as opposed to just being malicious about it. I think that that is a re I mean I see that right. in the the queer characters that he plays like right. it's so obviously not this is a gay character. Right. Um and I guess like that is sort of my like I go back and forth with this like should gay people be playing gay people and and only gay people should be play gay people. I don't know if I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Um I think the issue is you know, people not being able to be out and still having movies made about their experience. I think that's the the friction there. Right. Um, but I definitely, when he's talking about, you know, seeing the other aspects of the character, like in Flawless, which is not, I mean, it's, it's not like a super nuanced movie about queerness, mm -hmm. directed by a gay man. Right. So, you know, there is And a gay that. man who kind of, I was thinking about this, like really had quite a career and it was ne like, wasn't defined. 
at least in terms of his career and the kind of things he did, it wasn't like a huge part. It's like he was such a Hollywood craftsman to some extent that like it was interesting to go like go like oh yeah, Jules Joel Schumacher was like a gay man who was really given more kind of like he made a whole bunch of different types of movies and, and I don't know it just kind of struck with me when he I was, did I mean I just on my podcast yes. talk, <laughs> talked about the Lost Boys it was a pretty gay movie oh it's <laughs> one of the gayest without right. ever explicitly saying it right. but it's extremely gay and flawless I mean it's just like very explicit with it um but it's yeah. I mean, flawless is like very schlocky, like I was yeah. as I was saying, but Philip Seymour Hoffman is the only thing that saves that movie, right? And in Boogie Nights, it's the same thing where that character it could easily be like, oh, he tries to kiss Dirk, and it's like this laugh moment, but instead he brings such a nuance and pain yeah. to that moment that it really becomes the moment in the party in 1980 when everything is like shifting to pain right. to this painful thing and that's that uh, that interaction really sets that off right so there's it's it's much more nuanced than a lot of other people have played gay so watching i want to come back to that because we before we we talked we also watched the scene from the master right which is p- pretty gay <laughs> um but and i i think it sort of gave me a, a you know, made me think a little bit more about Paul Thomas Anderson's films because these are obviously both Paul Thomas Anderson films. But um, which we were decided earlier on, we weren't going to do a Paul Thomas Anderson festival. But it's interesting in relation to these two. But you'd seen Flawless before. Yes, funny story. I saw Flawless because my piano teacher, who always showed up wasted oh, to no. our piano lesson. Oh, no. I know my parents exposed us to like a cavalcade of creeps growing up. But oh. so doldrums and cavalcade. This is like an amazing <laughs> I was like please write a novel. Yeah. <laughs> I want to read it. I uh, do word of the day Ooh, do my dictionary app. Today. No, it's not. It's hyperbolic today, I think. Ooh. Um but yeah, she always showed up like kind of drunk and you know, I was a little homo, so she was like you should watch you should this watch- movie. <laughs> Watch Flawless. Yeah, because it was about piano lessons, mm. sort of. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I watched it when I was, like, in middle school, I think. Um, and I thought it was, like, really touching because I was a kid. And then, of course, like, watching it as an adult, I'm like, wow, this blows. But it's... Uh, <laughs> hey, Joel, this blows. <laughs> Love Annie. I love the Lost Boys. <laughs> but I love the Lost Boys. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't. I'm being so hard on it. There's just, there are moments in the movie that are good. Do you feel like, for the time, it's a little more progressive than it? Like, I mean, now it's cr- maybe it's cringeworthy because it's what 17 years old or almost 20 years old, probably at this point. But is it? Because watching it, I. I I sort of felt the same way. Like I was like, "Oof, this is like rough." Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of moments that I love, like when Robert De Niro, for the first time, is shouting out the window at the group of gay men in Philip Seymour Hoffman's apartment, and he's like, "Yeah, shut up!" And Philip, without missing a beat, Philip Seymour Hoffman just le- leans out of the window and is like, "You shut the fuck up!" <laughs> like, <laughs> That's good. Yeah, like without no hesitation, and I don't know. There's like so much subtlety there. Like you in that moment, you know this. This guy does this to him all the time to, to right. Philip Seymour Hoffman. So you know already that 
you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman is like on the defensive right. immediately. And I love the moment also when they're like taunting him and like singing really loudly at the window. Like there's some really great moments of like gay joy in this movie oh, okay. that I feel like, uh, you know, Joel Schumacher lends that experience to in right. those moments. Um, but overall, I mean, this concept of like, this is somebody who was like viciously homophobic to this person. It's really hard to watch. Yeah. And now he's like his buddy and like doing favors for him. It doesn't, that would never happen. And it's it's like, re- it's like a redemption thing. It made me think a little bit about a similar time, the Greg Kinnear part in As Good As It Gets. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it, it gives the character this redemption, which is problematic because right. that actually is is how straight people use queer people in real life like to make themselves better people like I've had so many straight friends say to me like being friends with you has made me realize like all of these things about the world and Mm. I'm like you're welcome I literally have no choice but to live in the world like that but (laughs) but thanks for coming along for the ride it's kind of like a weird tokenism yeah yeah that is yeah and I think that part of that is because we like in the 90s and before but obviously like two very clear examples it feels like movies that kind of just did that and so people watch them and they everyone absorbs this shit and they go like oh okay like this is fine because they feel some kind of sense of like relief because they they're able to like oh that like how quaint like oh they're just gay people like it doesn't really like yeah, help uh, the cause I guess this thing. person really is a human right. being so <laughs> I mean it's when you I right. mean that's really like the the period there at the end right. of that is like and at the end he realized he was human and it's like right. cool but he had to suffer through his homophobic harassment right. before they got to that point and because the movie begins with the presumption that like as an audience member everyone is like well gay people are inhuman or subhuman <laughs> yeah. right like the, if a movie starts with that as like the the central tenant it's like that's really problematic, and probably not in the str- in the eyes of straight people quite as problematic now as or then as it is. Like now, that feels a little more obvious. Yeah. Whereas I feel like when this movie came out, everyone was like, "Oh, yay!" Well, pe- <laughs> people used to take it for granted, and I mean, often still do that. Movies are for them. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this is for me. This is a this is for a straight person. I mean, it is for straight people that movie. Right. Like, it definitely is. I mean, there's. some really beautiful moments of interaction and bonding between the queer characters but overall like there's sort of this like spectacle like that there's a scene I know maybe you don't remember from Mm. Flawless but there's a scene where they're like fighting the the gay people are fighting because they're like doing this drag yes, contest yes i watched, I watched yeah. that scene earlier today yeah and they're like there it's funny like i had to laugh because the person is like we need lesbians right 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 <laughs> and, like that is something that maybe like would have happened right. where they're like like a joke like oh my god we need to get some lesbians in here but the way it's played is so like for a straight gaze so it's yes, it, it you know there's a very heterosexual gaze on this movie. Well, and I yeah, watching it, I felt like it was like, look how funny gay people are. Exactly, they're so funny, right? Um, the one scene that I did want to talk briefly about because I felt like it it speaks to his performance, but also there's a scene early on where it's pretty early on in the movie where Robert De Niro and his <laughs> Stroke performance leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> no offense to Robert De Niro because I think that's a really hard thing to do. No, yeah, that it was the but, stroke performance was not great. It sort of borders. Well, it is caricaturesque. Yeah, but um, he's like talks about how he calls him a drag queen. Yes, and Philip Seymour Hoffman 
uh, has this speech about like, well, I don't like that term. Yeah. And he talks about like growing up and like being in a play and like it felt very humanizing to me because it didn't the the choices that Schumacher makes and there's only one cutaway to De Niro looking kind of like suspicious of him but the scene doesn't feel as though it's photographed through that that no, lens it feels very nuanced to me it is I mean all of Philip Seymour Hoffman's do- uh, monologues in that movie I mean he's to be honest really good in that movie like he's yeah. the only good thing about that movie to right. me um, and he you know all of his monologues in it are really not played for any kind of laughs or it it's like so I see in that quote that you read I see that he brought that to it like right. it really wasn't about oh this is a queer person right. like it it was like who is this who is this person who is this character and those are like the the parts of the movie that are redeemable yeah that was my feel like I was sort of like oh this is like very like kind of touching yeah like I felt that moment and and it transcended like whatever kind of stereotypes the movie presents to me of either character right and there's a specific moment in there where he goes like he says i'm an artist and then he kind of giggles and backs away from de niro and i was like holy shit that is like someone that has had to justify their own existence for like a long time yes people are like you're a drag queen yes and um yeah no that's a good moment moment i mean any of those moments where he it's really him just talking are mm-hmm. really good. There's also a moment where he's like going through a breakup that is really touching. Mm-hmm. Um overall I don't love the messaging of this movie, but I do have a soft spot for his performance in it. It feels yeah, it, I mean it, I, we've talked a lot about on the show him uh being the best part of any movie that like he's the best part of many a movie like i think i mean completely out of the left field though is like something like mission impossible 3 where you're like oh it's kind of a not a great movie but he's so rooted in reality as opposed to everyone around him and he always is i mean that's like his thing with these performances is they're always so rooted in reality Mm -hmm. which is what keeps it from being caricature when he plays queerness there was another bit in the same out magazine that was specifically about Capote and he was talking about Capote's like status in terms of if he was out um, you know when the movie takes when the movie takes place in real life and as opposed to the film and he was like yeah I mean I didn't I don't know that he was going around saying I'm gay but like he was out he was an out person Um, and I thought that was sort of spoke to this quote because it was like as an actor it's interesting that you know when you watch Capote have you seen Capote yeah at least to me, it feels like not that relationship with Jack Dunphy is very central to the movie and what the movie has to say. But it also doesn't feel like it's it's spending a lot of time leaning too hard on his sexuality, even though it's like so apparent in, in the character. Uh, it doesn't feel as though the movie is is it's interesting to watch it and think about what it's trying to say in terms of like, if it has anything to say about him being gay um, beyond the stuff in Kansas. I mean, I think it does. I mean, I would, cause I was listening to y'all's episode about this movie and you know, the connection that he has with one of the killers uh, you guys were saying is not necessarily like a romantic mm-hmm. connection. And I would maybe disagree mm-hmm. with that. I think that he, it is, and I think it's just so well done and subtle right. that it just doesn't come off in the way that we are used to gay romances coming off, which are mm. as like maudlin or like predatory. 
And I think it just shows. Uh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. I think it just shows like a really um, authentic connection. And I mm-hmm. think like Truman Capote is like, is sort of in love with him in a way, just in this very like, it's different than the way that he is in love with his partner. Well, the the relation. One of the things that's interesting to me that you're, what you're saying, and I I, th- I think that it's int- the the relationship with Jack Dunphy just feels like people that have been been together for a long time, right? So it's kind of like, yep, this is us. We're a couple. It's not the most exciting thing in the world, but they like love each other. The thing that's interesting to me about the relationship with um, Perry is that it's certainly not pred- predatory, but it it feels manipulative in the sense that he's like gonna profit in a. W- I know he never ended up really profiting off him, but like there's that whole journalistic or it's so compelling because he's writing a nonfiction narrative. Yes. He's obsessed with or in and, love with. And is he in love with him or is he in love with himself and like right. all his grand ideas about this <sighs> novel he's going to make? Yeah. And that is something that we all do mm-hmm. and is not like unique to a queer experience, though maybe in some ways different because queer people often our partners mirror us in ways in which straight people can sort of avoid or not see it in the same way because we're both men or both women. So it's very like our, you know, our, like that's why they're, I'm going to, can you curse on this show? Fuck it. Okay. As as a gay, (laughs) there's, there's, you know, the concept of like dyke alikes Mm -hmm. or like gay men who basically date each other, like people who look like each other. And, you know, there's that, you know, that, that could be part of it of like this, you know, seeing this kind of this guy that you know is is something you could have been if only you weren't like such a sissy or whatever. Oh. So it's which is an element that's a, that's at play a lot in queer relationships. Um, but yeah, I mean, who knows if he's really like truly in love with him or like the idea of him and of this brilliant thing he's gonna write. But I think that comes out in the performance. No, it's so compelling yeah. in that sense. And like the way you're describing it kind of brings me back to the movie and the scene towards the end when he knows they're going to get executed and he goes into the room and he's crying. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, I think it's a really, I mean, I think it's a good movie. I think I think it's a great movie. I think it's an incredible performance. And one of the things that I think is incredible about it is the way the vanity kind of disappears throughout the course. Because there's a scene early on where he comes downstairs in the hotel and he kind of like spins around and he's just so like, presentational yeah I think the movie does a nice job of like placing that character in this like very straight dude culture when he's when he's uh, in the police station or he's in the in in that environment but it's really kind of amazing to me how much ambiguity I'm not ambiguity yeah ambiguity there is in that Perry relationship because it's 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 a it's fucked up in the sense that like Yes, he's obsessed with himself, or he's obsessed with Perry, maybe, or he's obsessed with his book, or he thinks the book's important. Yeah, I mean, it's a typical problematic muse mm-hmm. creator relationship yeah. just being played out in this like carceral c- queer space. Carceral. Yeah. Carceral. Like, uh, pertaining to uh like corporal punishment or you oh, know like yeah. in a okay. in, oh yeah in a incarcerated Damn, space <laughs> the, the language yeah i'm smart <laughs> i'm a smart de- person no, but car- whoa yeah. like doldrums <laughs> i know um let's talk quick so we just watched this scene from the master 
which, as you said at the very end, so for those who are watching at home, we're not going to sample it, but it's the scene at the end where Philip Seymour Hoffman sings Slow Boat to China to Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> Sounds absurd. Sounds absurd, but it's... Um, I I'd seen I've seen the film a few times. I don't know if I love the film, but I thought that the scene was really beautiful and really different from the other things we've seen that might be that that are kind of queer or gay. Yeah, I mean because he's playing like an L. Ron Hubbard figure right. in that movie, and I don't know. I mean, do I have a difficult time believing L. Ron Hubbard was probably queer? Right. Not at all. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of people. <laughs> right. Um, well, he created this whole crazy, probably a very repressed human being, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, you know, like, this is the other thing is, like, people are like, oh, I don't know if he was gay. He was married. It's like, well, there's a lot of other kinds of queerness other than being yeah. gay. <laughs> so it's possible to, you know, uh, love your wife and also love men. <laughs> so it's, but. Uh, right. Well, the film it, deals with that a little bit, too, because the relationship between him and Amy Adams, like a lot of the speculation is she's the master. The master of the, the titular master is his wife. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean. In that scene, there's such, like, a level of connection and tenderness. It actually really reminded me of, like, Brokeback Mountain in a way. Uh, like, the mood of that movie and um, the heartbreak between them. It's pretty beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, there are, I know there's a couple scenes in that movie, like, where... Amy Adams is jerking off yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's very and, domineering and controlling. Yes, and he's like really kind of thinking about Joaquin. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both kind of do that right. with women in the movie. Um, right. And, you know, using women as a way to sort of act out these other fantasies is also very typical theme in film and in life (laughs) so there's also that element to it um but yeah i mean they're clearly in love (laughs) they're so in love yeah and it's beautiful like i mean they're beautiful performances like joaquin phoenix just has this shot that seems to go on forever where his eye is there's a tear coming out of his eye and it moves all the way down his face and it's like I I don't know I don't rem- I saw the big film on the big screen and I I do remember the scene but I don't remember kind of being sort of it's hypnotic it's a really hypnotically filmed sequence and there's so much that's being said without being said mm-hmm. like when he says if you come back if we meet in an ex life you'll be my enemy and I'll do everything to destroy you like even that is so erotically coded yeah like it there's a lot that is unsaid. Well, and it makes me, I mean, to come back, like, Paul Thomas Anderson is so, is always the, like, dudes love Paul Thomas Anderson movies, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, and I like his films, too. It's not a, I, I really think they're great. But it's interesting to watch something like Boogie Nights, that specifically the with the Hoffman character, and then to watch There'll Be Blood has a certain amount of homoeroticism to it, I Absolutely. think. And I think Inherent Vice does between Brolin and Joaquin Phoenix. Well, I think, I mean, a, a movie that is about men is inherently about masculinity. Right. Just by virtue of just being about men. And a lot of, you know, maybe a lot of people don't want to admit it, but a lot of straight male masculinity is homoeroticism. And the tension between, like, do I want to be this guy or do yeah. I want to be with this guy yeah. and that's you know very natural evolution of that 
story. So that has to be present when we're talking about relationships between straight men even. Well, and I also think that like, you know, speaking largely about the podcast, like the the the, the kickoff for this podcast was was is the movie Husbands, which is like so about male love. Yes. Um and then Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, I don't think it, it really occurred to me, but like is so the, at least on so many of the parts that he did, there's like there's there's the the queer element or the male kind of broish kind of like in love with each other. Along came Polly covers it a little bit. Like that's a movie about masculinity. Absolutely. Like Mark Pagan like kind of eloquently put it. And it's like interesting to sort of think about how so many of these big famous I mean, actors kind of engaged in this kind of like broy maleness in their careers. It's interesting to think about all of these things like as a larger picture. Um What's interesting about the master to me is that he says, leave now or, or you could stay. And the way he says you could stay is so like, it's beautiful. It's, it's like heartbreaking. A, yeah, it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's a breakup. It is a breakup. I, yeah. And yeah, it's uh, really romantic. And he also then says, like you said, I could destroy you. And it's like interesting to think about what, Phil, not what Paul Thomas Anderson there is saying a little bit. It's like we're either together or you're dead. Yeah, codependency. Woof. Yeah, some a lot of codependent themes going on too in these movies. Yeah, no, for sure. It's kind of amazing. I don't think I. I mean, I. I really. I said this to you before the recording. I saw this movie twice, and I was in like the haze of like I'd been traveling, and I was sort of like um, jet lagged, so I could. <laughs> staying awake both times I saw it. <laughs> I mean, it's long. It's long and slow. It's a little slow. But I don't think any of this kind of made sense. I don't think, I remember kind of, and this was, you know, years ago, but I remember kind of being like, why is he singing? <laughs> <laughs> why is that guy Because he's in love with him. <laughs> yeah. And then you guys also did Talented Mr. Ripley too. Oh, yeah. How did we forget about yeah. that? So, I mean, that's also like a gay-ass love triangle. So gay. Yeah. Without without saying it explicitly. There's the moment where um, Tom Ripley, and I think Matt Damon is really ex- like exceptional in that movie. Oh, I, I love that movie. It's, inc- it's an, inc- yeah. it's like, um, I mean, I don't, I think it's kind of like a masterpiece of a movie, but he tracks them down in the record store and- uh, uh, what's his name? What is Matt Damon's character's name? And yeah, it's, it's yeah. He grabs Jude Law, and pulls him out. And there's a, a cut to a close up of Phil Hoffman, and he looks like he wants to murder Matt Damon. Yeah, that's his boo. It's his boo, right? Yeah. And it's so like yeah, music and girls and boobs and yeah. stuff. Like yep. there's just they're such bros. I mean. <sighs> Bonding over boobs with another man, yeah, yeah, is gay. I mean, sorry, <laughs> no, like no, 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 it's. Yeah. I mean, but this is like the other thing is like I'm not even saying like oh it means you actually want to have sex with your friend. It's more about like a homosocial homoeroticism of it. Yeah, like it's fun to feel sexy mm-hmm. and like think about that stuff and like you know you're homosocially bonding. Like it's inherently right. homoerotic. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of like subtext in that movie about their relationship, the three of them, and um, 
you know, being jealous because your best friend has a new best friend is a very typical queer experience. It's also terrible. (laughs) It is also terrible. But then he has to kill, he kills Jula because he can't have him. Right? Right. They break up and then he murders him. And then he goes, Phil Hoffman shows up at the apartment and runs it like in, even though he suspects something is a is a, is like wrong with like maybe that Matt Damon's character has killed him. Tom Ripley's killed him. Um, I can't believe I forgot that his name was Tom Ripley. The Tom Ripley, the incredible and- Mr. Ripley, <laughs> and uh, Jula's Dicky, right? Dicky Greenleaf. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I have to rewatch this movie. <laughs> but he goes to the apartment, and like there is that sort of in Phil Hoffman. There's that sort of character that's a sort of understanding of like what's going on here with you guys yes what's happening here? yeah so it's really really interesting he's I like totally... i thought i was the side piece yeah, what, about, what about me yeah, yeah no and then he kills him too yeah it's a love triangle yes and then he falls in love with the other guy and kills him yeah and the w- woman right yeah, um, G- G- Gwyneth Paltrow. Gwyneth Paltrow. It's a really good performance. I know I forget about her because she's such a cuckoo bananas person so now, but bananas. but she was great back then. Cuckoo bananas as, co- as Cocoa Puffs. Yeah, yeah, goop. Goop. Um, this episode brought to you by goop. <laughs> she's She's so like, her role in that movie is so just to be this, you know, locus. Like, for them to focus around while ignoring, like, how in love they are with each other. Even though, I mean, her performance is really good and she brings a lot of nuance to it. But, yeah, I mean, she's there for basically, like, the no homo (laughs) aspect of it. That's why she wears that t-shirt that says no homo. (laughs) (laughs) She's, like, such a fag hag in that movie. (laughs) I'm now sort of, like, re-going through his uh, Philip Philip Seymour Hoffman's filmography and going, like, was there anything else? I'm trying to think, too. Um... Not that I can think of, but that's like five films that like. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of films, and someone. Let's pull up his, his um. Filmography. Film, I believe the term is filmography. <laughs> really quickly, and see if we can. See you watch hearing this live, everybody. <laughs> wow. Did he play gay again? Did he play gay again? Um. I you know I I was also like doing researching for this episode I was like I'm so sad about his death. You know, it's it like I really ugh. Yeah, it really messes me up. Um not that I can find. Um there's a, f- a few films on here I've never seen. Um so that's that's a question, but um was there any queer side story in um Doubt? Oh, that's a good question. I've actually never seen Doubt. I never have And I we're doing it. We're doing it soon. Oh, okay, so cool. oh, we will report back on that. But um No, not not nothing that like screams out to me. Um he did mm. Flawless in ninety nine. He did Magnolia in uh-huh. ninety nine. He did Next Stop Wonderland, which is another movie about seventies porn. Right. That's so funny. But yeah, I mean it's kind of amazing that um and the thing of re- not even just the queer, but the thing of repression comes up a lot. We just recorded because we we couldn't f- we couldn't get a uh, copy of Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. It's impossible to find, so we went back and did Twenty Fifth Hour. Mm. Um, and it's not. I like that movie. So repressed in that movie. Yeah, I mean, maybe the theme of this whole thing is that Philip Seymour Hoffman isn't so much an everyman, it, or it, that he he plays repression very well. Yeah, and that yeah, 
and wow yeah and his queer characters i mean there's never like a happy queer character yeah especially in this context with the characters he played yes and they're all repressed and that seems to be like a theme running through his well the other day i was saying to george i was like i feel like so to go beyond the everyman thing which again like problematic but there's what i would describe as big phil and little phil and to be simplistic about it, little Phil to me is sort of his more like repre- like his openly repressed, like his like um, his performance in happiness, mm-hmm. which is like especially in the incel culture now, like looking back, like whoa, Ooh, that's a fascinating movie to talk about with regards to the rise of incels. Yes, because Ugh. he's yeah, I mean it's woof, and then um, a little bit with Boogie Nights, there's a little bit of this, just like I don't know how to exist kind of thing. But then I was thinking, like, then there's Big Phil, which I would say is the parts in things like Mission Impossible 3 or The Master, where he has, like, charisma and is big and kind of, like, occupies these characters. But then watching that scene from The Master, you're like, talk about repression. Yeah, he's so vulnerable in that moment and yeah. so little and, you know. Very, and not and L. Ron Hubbard was probably historically a bully. Yes, and created a religion to control people, which <laughs> says something about repression. I yes, think. yeah. So I mean, yeah, he, like he just plays repression really well. So this is interesting to think about because it's like what I would, from my own contextualization, is like what an everyman. And you're pointing out like that might be a repression thing, which yeah. I think is really not like a huge part of problematic behavior. I mean, it's actually yeah, yeah, and it's a huge part of like the problem with beta male culture mm-hmm. like feeling like oh you got you got cheated out of something right. and you can't really express because every other guy is a Mark Wahlberg and I'm mm-hmm. just me I'm just a Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah, I'm just a which is oh yeah like it's like that's really interesting to me because I think that as a like I said earlier on like I identify with him as an actor and a performer and a human being but I've now spent time being like what why What's that about? Because there is that sort of like easy, the easy narrative being like, well, I got screwed. Or I think more than that, one of the most chilling moments in happiness is he's on the phone and he's at work and he's like saying something awful. And then someone's like, hey, f- I forget his character's name. Phil. And he's like, yes. And you're like, oh. <laughs> that is so incel. I mean, yes. that's like what's really scary about those people is like they're among us. Yeah. And like who knows who they really are. Well, and it's like he, one thing, you know, the thing about with that is that that's 99. Like as you pointed out, that's an interesting film to think about in relationship to this incel culture. And if he were, pl- if, if that character were written now, and again, Todd Salons is like a very specific case, like. I mean, but <laughs> would would it be interesting to see an, a uh, a fifty year old Phil Hoffman play a character like that now with like a smidge of self awareness? Yes, that would be interesting. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, because he's really good at it. And I mean, I think like the everyman thing because it's you know because uh, guys who are like Mark Wahlberg think of Mark Wahlberg as the everyman. So it's who is the everyman you know it's it's really just who you identify with because you see them playing out your cultural experience right and he philip seymour hoffman is not a leading man Mm -mm. like he's just a dude average looking dude who happens to be a great actor so gets kind of pigeonholed into non-leading man parts even though he did get to play some really great parts in his life yeah and i mean the 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 leading man roles kind of came and with the exception of capote like came towards the end of his life and things like a most wanted man and stuff where he was Mm. able to at that point in his career like assume that 
Right. Whereas a woman could never. Right. I mean, it's maybe really recently. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking of, like, Melissa McCarthy and Can You Ever Forgive Me? Like, she's the lead role yeah. in that, but she's also uh, kind of a, a complicated queer weirdo character in that in the film yeah, yeah yeah and her career has led to that by doing a whole bunch of like really by of... doing a whole bunch of elaborate fat friend jokes yeah yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> and like kind of not allowed not being allowed to exist outside of that context yes. on screen yeah which is kind of exciting what's starting to seem to happen for her career now definitely but it, yeah it takes so and i mean but at the on the other hand it's like she could never play like um like a hero like well, a yeah. like a woman who's like a spy who like you know that would never happen have you seen a most wanted man i haven't so it's interesting you say spy because that's like one of the last things he did and he plays a, a spy who's like investigating um extremism in berlin like right in the i believe in the years after 9-11 and I, it's a really tragic performance because it's about a man obsessed who's like doesn't take care of himself doesn't do anything to like kind of he's not like the he's not like the movie doesn't open with him getting up at 6 a.m and running like 18 miles before like going to his office it opens him in like a bar drinking and smoking and just like well and then from him you know because a lot of leading men do that in movies but coming from him it's like there's a sadness to it because he looks so average right you know it's not like a sexy like he'd never be given that other thing right yeah it's like look at me i'm like so i'm like working out like it's just not yeah or even when like a quote-unquote like sexy buff man plays an anti-hero like that who like right. smokes and drinks and destroys James his life. Bond. John Hamm, Mad Men. Yeah. Right? That's like the biggest example I can think of. James Bond. They, this guy should not look the way that they <laughs> look based on how they behave yeah. in those movies. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Good. Yeah. Like they they can get away with it because it's, you know, it's like, oh, isn't it? He's tortured. Yes. So, whereas like when a normal looking person does stuff like that, it's like, oh, this person is a, is straight up troubled in a not fun way yes yeah and i think that one of the things that actually attracts me to that part and attracts me to him as an artist and a person and this is going to sound a little perverse but it's like an honest thing and john cassavetes is the self-destruction i think it's really romanticized yes well yes yeah male self-destruction is always super romanticized whereas if like a woman is being self-destructive it's like look at this sad slut oh there's something wrong with yeah Yeah. totally 100 (laughs) and it's with men, it's either the butt of a joke, as it would be in like a Along Came Polly, where he's just like a big flubby idiot, and like who's like too confident to be yes. to look the way that he looks. And what's great about that performance is I love how hard he leans into confidence in those performances. He doesn't go like, "Oh, I'm sad." He goes like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm this guy. It's great." Yeah, and I mean, it's it's interesting, but it's also you could also read it as because I, for those who don't know, I study this and I'm like giving a talk on it in October. Um, Which you're going to pitch at the end. We want to hear more Yeah, plug, it. plug. Um, that is another role that fat people are also allowed to play, which is like they are so unaware of how weird and fat they are. Like it's right. <laughs> it, I Gosh, mean, yeah. that's Melissa McCarthy's entire career. That's Rebel Wilson's entire entire career. Right. It's like they uh, look it makes them socially abnormal. Their fatness makes them socially abnormal. So it the the personality goes hand in hand with that Mm -hmm. so it's like oh like what right does this person have to be so confident and that's the comedy of it is like 
this person is so confident even though they're so average looking yeah Um, and i think that that movie plays with that in ways that are both like maybe a little subversive at times but also in ways that are probably as retrograde like i'm thinking about the scene (laughs) i can't stop where he's like shooting baskets and he's like what chocolate Uh, like random shit and it's so goddamn funny well because he's funny yeah yeah like yeah it's it's funny i mean it's like melissa mccarthy is hilarious in bridesmaids right but it's an elaborate fat joke, the character. Yeah, no, I think that that's really, and that's like almost, it's almost ridiculous how not, how, I mean, how both obvious that is and how sort of like under the radar that goes, like in terms of being like, ha, ah, that's like, it's, it's, I mean, a lot of comedy obviously is other people's pain, but the move, it's like, it's amazing how that just kind of is accepted. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so, yeah, so accepted and and so, like, taken for granted and maybe only recently not cool to do. Like, very recently. Like, maybe for a year. Yeah, well, and I I think that, like, I want to wrap up because you have other things to do. But I think that one thing that comes back to this whole idea of the everyman and something that you brought is that he... Besides not being like a traditionally good looking or being like your archetypal image of, of anything, the opportunities that he's granted because of his male, because he's a man and because he's like considered a good actor is not, would not be allowed to anyone else. And that's not a criticism of at all of him, but it's just like something I've been thinking about. No, I mean, it's just, it's, it's not a criticism of him because he was a great actor, but it's just factual. Right. Like it's, you know, a woman who looks like that. I mean, I talk about this quote all the time, but Rachel Dratch, like years ago mm-hmm. from SNL, said in an interview, she was like, I'm not a fucking troll, but because I am in like an average looking woman, I can't get any parts that are not about like being an absolute troll. She was supposed to be Liz Lemon on 30 Rock. Yeah, but because Tina Fey is cuter, like it's you know one of the most absurd things to me is the whole downplaying of Tina Fey's like traditional. I'm just you know, an average girl, so and it's like I, you're like, what are you talking? You're about? like a thin white woman yep. who just happens to be a brunette. Okay, right. <laughs> like you're not. Look at my nerdy appearance. Yeah. nobody's into me. Yeah, because you have glasses. Sure. Her phone rings. The guy in the other one's like, "Hey, it's Phil." Like, come yeah. on, like get out of here. Yeah, like it. She's an objectively attractive woman, right. and uh, like disclaimer, I think everybody we're talking about is attractive like i'm not even assigning value judgment but that's just how people how the industry works right and it i mean like amy poehler also is not an unattractive woman but we are like gaslit into Mm -hmm. believing that these women are Mm -hmm. like they're they're above average looking people (laughs) and anyone in hall basically anyone in hollywood has to be a little bit on some yeah except men right i mean it's like they get kind of like ghettoized into certain characters but they're allowed to have such illustrious careers like in a way that women who look like that could never in past decades well we were looking at that clip from the master before and you're staring at these two faces for a long time and at a certain point you're like god they're both so good looking Oh, yeah. And I mean, they're so like sexily grizzled. And I mean, they really are. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a hot scene. There's like some really like intense sexual tension. And like Joaquin Phoenix is, you know, he's so beautiful. He's so beautiful, like objectively. Like he's a very attractive man. And the, I mean, I, it's kind of, you know, 
refreshing to see this relationship between this like really hot guy and this like sort of average looking guy and they have and how he looks up to him yeah. and is like entranced with this in hit with him in this sequence yeah it is actually really amazing and to bring it back to flawless real quick i was like kind of watching some scenes and took some notes and like you spend it like when phil hoffman is doing the speech uh, when when as rusty and you're sort of looking at me like he's so pretty He's like yeah. such a pretty person. Oh my god, he does. I mean, this is another thing. I mean, I don't know if we have time to talk about it, but it, you know, just people playing cisgender people playing trans people, and that is one of the better examples mm. uh, in that in that movie because there's like a lot of nuance to it, and um, he embodies somebody who is like sort of just coming into presenting a certain way all the time in a very yes. realistic way. And he's also not, God, we could talk, we we have to do more of this because this is great, but he's also not, they don't, at least in the bits that I've seen, they don't, the drag queens do not come off as grotesque, like in the way that they might no. conventionally be in a, in a lesser, in a movie that's not paying attention to that well, kind of nuance. And I did notice also that, a lot of the people, the other people who are playing drag queens and queer people are probably actually queer people in real yeah. life. Um, you yeah. know, not to stereotype my own kind, but like, come on. It. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like you're allowed. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, that is interesting too, that element to it of like, there are all these actual queer people in the movie mm-hmm. and around his character. And I don't know, I didn't, again, like, I'm not trans, but, like, as a queer person, I did not find his portrayal to be particularly offensive or anything. Mm -hmm. I think, like, the concept of the movie is inherently offensive, but I don't think that his performance is. Yeah, that's kind of my reading, too. I mean, it just feels humanized, humanizing. and Yeah, I mean, with a lesser actor, it would have been god-awful. Awful, Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he really saves the movie. I mean, Robert De Niro is also a complete caricature of a homophobe. Like right. he's he doesn't play that with any kind of nuance or subtlety like how it is in real life. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's very overt and he's a misogynist also. But I, on the other hand, I got to appreciate the um, tie between homophobia and misogyny that this movie presents to us mm-hmm. because they are inherently linked. So right. I think that that maybe it was intentional, but I think that that unintentional. But I think that that is an interesting element as well. We could go forever. I don't want to keep you here forever. But before we do go, thank you so much. Yeah, this was really for fun. Me, yeah. Do you want to pitch your talk that you're giving and your show? Please pitch your show because now's the time to, to listen to your wonderful show. Thank and you. Give money to your wonderful show. Yeah, yeah give me money. money. I, What's your show called? It is called Girls, Guts, and Giallo. And uh, every week I have a different guest and we talk about uh, subversive cinema from a queer perspective. Um, if there's like an episode that you would recommend people start with, I have a thought, but I want to hear what you think. I think I think they've all been really good. No, I <laughs> all of them. <laughs> like, for example, if you want to hear about what kind of movies we cover, I really like the episodes that I did on Basic Instinct yes. and Showgirls. Those are like a really good companion episodes because Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus did both those movies. Um, and I really like the one on Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, because my guest was really amazing. And um, the one on Pink Flamingos was good. And It's we- really going to be all of them, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I and that, yeah. I've had like 18 so yeah, far. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, they're 
there's a I just want to give you a kind of idea of the movies we talk about. No, it's great. So anything subversive, particularly focusing on women. I was gonna say the basic instinct episode actually as well, because I think that like that movie's so controversial or was it's not now in the same sense, but um Paul Verhoeven is such an interesting filmmaker. Oh yeah, and as someone who's now watched so many interviews with him. He's <laughs> I love Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, I do too. I mean he's like such a creep. Yeah, <laughs> but as a creep, I relate. So yeah, and I will go to bat for Starship Troopers as a movie about America before anyone realized well, that it was the book that we talk about in the Showgirls episode called "It Doesn't Suck" by Andrew Nayman, which is about the movie Showgirls. He t- also dissects uh, Starship Troopers, and he basically says the same thing that you so said. Amazing. Yeah, I just watched it with someone recently, and they were like, "I don't really see how this is about America." And I was like, "Oh my god, that. it's inherently um, about that." And you're raising money on Patreon. I am right, patreon.com slash girlsgutsjallo. If you subscribe for $10 a month, you get bonus episodes on new releases. It's great. And it's a really good show. I'm glad that you like it. I and the that. talk I'm giving is at the New yes. Orleans Film Festival in October. And um, it's a talk that I've like, been pitching around and speaking at colleges for and maybe going to turn into a book or something. Who knows? That's a great idea. Yeah. but it's, what, Do you want to talk a little bit about the subject? Yeah. It's um, uh, about representations of fat women in television and film. And, um, you know, basically I, I divide, I through my research, have divided representations of fat women into a few categories. And I expand on that and I give examples. It sounds really good. And we love your show. And we I love you. I'm so glad. And thank you for stopping by. Thank George you. really missed out. George, if you're listening, you really screwed this <laughs> up. But... I listen to you guys every week. Yay. <laughs> thank you. All right. That's it. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Annie. And um, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>